Back in the summer of 1874, the Comanche and their allies went on the offense. Turns out a bunch of uninvited buffalo hunters were invading their territory, and, well, they didn't much appreciate that. This turn of events would lead to the Second Battle of Doby Walls and the Red River War, a conflict that saw Colonel Renal McKenzie and the U.S. Army crisscrossing the Llano Estacado in order to finally defeat the Comanche for good. And they were successful mostly due to McKenzie striking at their winter camp, destroying their lodges, along with their supply of winter food, and killing over 1,500 head of Comanche ponies. Without provisions or shelter for the winter, and especially without their lifeblood, the horses, these lords of the southern plains were, effectively, defeated. By June of 1875, Quanah Parker and the last of the holdouts surrendered at Fort Sill, and that was it. The Comanche were on the reservation, the buffalo were mostly gone, and all that prime real estate was free for the taking. While the legendary Charles Goodnight may have been one of the first to run cattle near the Palo Duro Canyon, other folks soon began putting down roots some 90-odd miles to the northwest at a place called Tascosa. First, just a small collection of New Mexican sheep herders weren't long before Tascosa began filling up with Texas cattlemen and ranchers hoping to claim their piece of all that wide open land. And they did so at breakneck speed, turning the tiny sheep town into the cowboy capital of the plains and an economic rival to Dodge City nearly overnight. Massive ranches like the LS, the LX, the Frying Pan, and even the storied XIT, which is still around today, by the way, all began running cows in the area as Tascosa became the hub of all cattle shipping and supplying in the Texas panhandle. That being the case, Tascosa was about as wild of a town as you could hope to find back in its heyday, especially Lower Tascosa, which soon came to be called Hogtown. That's where you could find all the brothels and the cheaper, seedier saloons. You may remember from the recent series on Billy the Kid about how the regulators called Tascosa home after the Lincoln County War. Billy the Kid, Doc Scurlock, and Dave Rudabaugh all walked the Cowtown's dusty streets, as did other legendary Old West figures like John Selman, Henry Newton Brown, Pat Garrett, and Charlie Seringo, just to name a few. And then there were others, men perhaps you've never heard of, like Ed King or Poker Tom or Louis the Animal Boozman. And of course, we can't forget the Catfish Kid and Squirrel-Eyed Charlie. Sounds like a bunch of made-up names, I know, but what if I were to tell you that not only were they all very real citizens of Tuscosa, but that they also participated in a shootout that eclipsed the famous gunfight at the OK Corral, both in shots fired and dead bodies. Oh yeah, today we're going to take a little trip up to the Panhandle and visit a town described by some as tougher than Tombstone, deadlier than Dodge, and as damnable as Deadwood. This tale has a little bit of everything. Double-crossing dance hall gals, an action-packed gunfight, boot hill, a ghost town, and hell, I'll even top it all off with a nice little Old West love story. My name's Josh, and you're listening to the Wild West Extravaganza. L.S. Ranch got its start in 1880 when an old boy from Kansas named Lucian Scott purchased over 35,000 acres in the newly settled Texas Panhandle. Not long thereafter, he went into business with cattleman William McDowell Lee, and by 1883, the ranch had nearly doubled in size. Everybody was making big money, and by everybody, I mean the large spreads like the L.S. Investors from back east in Europe got involved, the smaller operations were squeezed out, and even the poor hard-working cowboys began filling the burn. 
Not only were they stuck making a paltry sum of just $30 a month, but they were also barred from the age-old tradition of branded mavericks and taking partial payment in calves. The only real hope any of these youngsters had in building capital of their own. So they went on strike. According to newspapers at the time, between two to 300 Texas panhandle cowboys, including them employed on the big ranches, all walked off the job shortly before the big spring roundup of 1883. They posted a list of demands, most of which were calling for a substantial raise in pay, and cautioned that anybody who ignored these stipulations would suffer the consequences. Oh my. Ultimately, the whole thing didn't amount to a hill of beans. The striking cowhands soon ran out of money and were forced to return back to their employers, 10-gallon hats in hand. Them that would take them back, that is. Many of the out-of-work cowboys soon found themselves blacklisted and unable to find work within several hundred miles. So some of them just took out their frustrations on their former bosses. Fences were cut, livestock was stolen, and pastures were burned. Hell, one group of out-of-work cowboys even took to calling themselves the Get Even Cattle Company. Now how much of this rank thievery and mayhem truly occurred is somewhat contested, and the strike, as well as its aftermath, were largely blown out of proportion by the newspapers. That said, there was enough of a problem with stolen livestock for the big spreads, namely the LS, to bring in some outside help. And who better to call than the former sheriff of Lincoln County, New Mexico himself, Pat Garrett. Still high off his reputation as being the man who killed Billy the Kid, Garrett signed on at $5,000 a year, over $150,000 in today's money, and formed what was called the Home Rangers. Now, I'm not certain how official this group was. Legend has it that Pat Garrett received a commission from then-Texas Governor John Ireland, but no such record has yet to be discovered. So whether or not they were officially official, or this was just sort of a wink and nod type of deal, Either way, I'm pretty positive that Garrett and the LS Ranch had the full approval of the Texas government. With that in mind, I do think it's important to point out that these guys were not Texas Rangers, despite using the name Ranger in their title. According to historian Leon Metz, many of the smaller ranchers and homesteaders, thinking that these developments were just a way for the big cattlemen to take over the entire country, started to sneeringly refer to Garrett's outfit as the LS Rangers. And they might have been onto something, as the Rangers' ranks were packed with LS employees, some of whom coincidentally had been with Garrett over at Stinkin' Springs when he arrested Billy Bonney and Rudabaugh and them others. Hell, Jim East, the sheriff of Oldham County, where Tuscosa is located, was also a former deputy of Garrett's, and he flat-out warned Pat about these new recruits, saying that he didn't want nothing to do with them. And I reckon Pat, to his credit, soon came to the same conclusion. Garrett quickly caught on to the fact that he was basically being paid to kill folks for the big outfit, as opposed to bringing them to trial, so he simply handed in his papers and the LS Rangers were disbanded. Ah, but they didn't just go away. Like I said earlier, most of them worked for the LS Ranch, and they continued to do so even after Garrett's departure. And even though they were no longer officially quote-unquote Rangers, that didn't stop them from trying to throw their weight around. And oh boy, throw it around, did they? albeit mostly in Tuscosa's various saloons and gambling establishments. So much so, in fact, that they soon earned themselves yet another nickname, the Barroom Gladiators. And, well, let's just say not everybody was a fan, especially not Tuscosa bartender Lim Woodruff, who had the misfortune of being one of the victims of Barroom Gladiator leader Ed King. Now, I found several references to Ed King being an ex-Texas Ranger, but once again, I'm not sure how true that is. I think this probably just alludes to King's time as an LS Ranger under Pat Garrett. 
but I could be wrong. One story I found, straight from a Tuscosa old-timer, stated that while Ed did indeed have at least one notch on his gun, he was mostly just a hard-working cowboy who earned an honest living. Problem was, when King got all liquored up, he was, quote, easy on the draw and didn't mind going on the offense. And not only had King recently stolen the aforementioned Lim Woodruff's girlfriend, a dance hall gal by the name of Sally Emery, but he also took to openly mocking the bartender, calling him Pretty Lim, slapping him on the face, and get this, even forcing Woodruff to call him Daddy. Woo! There's only so much abuse a man's willing to take, though, right? And I'm pretty sure being forced to call another grown man Daddy is getting right to that tipping point. And sure enough, Lim Woodruff was about to teach Ed King a lesson in manners that he wouldn't live long enough to forget. And it all came to a head in the still dark early morning hours of March 21st, 1886. Ed King and a few of his buddies, Johnny Lang, Frank Valley, and Fred Chilton, had themselves a real good time over at Hogtown before headed back into Tuscosa proper at around 2 a.m. They tied their ponies up at the Equity Bar and began to head inside. All of them except for Ed King, that is. Little Miss Sally Emery had just finished her shift over at Jenkins Saloon, and the two were headed back to her place for a little early morning rendezvous. As it turns out, Ed wouldn't make it. Right about the time that Chilton, Lang, and Valley were disappearing inside the equity, somebody held King from the shadows. Stepping forward to investigate, Ed was rewarded by a bullet slamming square into his face. He falls to the dirt, Sally Emery screams and takes off running, and sure enough, here comes Lim Woodruff emerging from the darkness with a smoking Winchester in his hands. Seeing King struggling to breathe, Lim levels the rifle once more and, at nearly point-blank range, squeezes the trigger, forever putting an end to King's days of slapping bartenders. Now remember, the ex-ranger's buddies are right across the street over at the Equity. They come spilling out in time to see Woodruff hightailing it towards Jenkins' saloon and give chase. Not seeing anybody out front, they then beat feet around back, only to run smack dab into the man they was a-hunting, Lim Woodruff. Only thing is, now he's got friends as well. Poker Tom Emery and his brother Squirrel-Eyed Charlie, Louis the Animal Boozman, and the awesomely named Catfish Kid. There weren't no love lost between this bunch and them barroom gladiators, to say the least, and gunfire erupted instantaneously. Despite both Woodruff and Squirrel-Eyed Charlie being on the receiving end of bullets, this fight would be an unmitigated disaster for Ed King's would-be Avengers. Frank Valley was the first to fall, and depending on the source, he was either shot between the eyes and dropped dead on the spot, or he took a bullet through the nose, of all places, and lingered painfully for about an hour before finally cashing in his chips. Either way, he was out of the fight right at the get-go, and his companion, Fred Chilton, didn't last much longer himself taking several rounds through the torso as he lurches to his knees, feebly handing his revolver off to the last man standing, Johnny Lang. And I think it's safe to say that at this point, Lang, now outnumbered 5-1, to one, needed all the firepower he could muster. Shooting as he ran, Johnny retreated for cover with the bullets kicking up dust all around him as he finally made it out of the kill zone and back to the equity bar. It was there that he found Sheriff Jim East and his deputy, Charlie Pierce, who were likely wondering what in the living hell had just popped off a block away. They accompany Lang back to the Jenkins Saloon, where they see somebody hop up from behind a woodpile and try to make a run for it. Three pistols bark in unison, and the catfish kid falls to the ground, writhing and moaning in pain. Johnny Lang and the two lawmen press forward, looking for the others, but by this point, they had already made their getaway. And a few moments later, so did the slippery catfish kid. 
Turns out he weren't hit at all and just sort of instinctively dropped at the sound of those guns and played possum as the lawman passed him by. As soon as they turned their backs, he was gone as well. And thus ended what's now known as the big fight at Jenkins Saloon. Like I said, Squirrel-Eyed Charlie and Lim Woodruff were wounded, but they would ultimately pull through. Johnny Lang never received a scratch, but all three of his buddies, Ed King, Frank Valley, and Fred Chilton, were buried at Tuscosa's Boot Hill the following day. Hey, real quick, let's hear from this episode's sponsors. All right, welcome back. Now, despite Woodruff and them others escaping into the night, they would all soon be arrested and charged with murder. The first trial resulted in a hung jury, and the second saw all five acquitted. And for the most part, they all stayed out of trouble for the rest of their lives, at least as far as I could find. Except, of course, for the Catfish Kid. I mean, with a name like that, it's hard not to get into trouble, right? Now, obviously, that wasn't his real name. It was John Goh, and he was, by all accounts, a troublemaker of the First Order. Shortly after the gunfight at Jenkins Saloon, Catfish would gun down an unarmed man and be sent to prison, where he died in the year 1890, ironically after choking on a catfish bone. Squirrel-eyed Charlie Emery would be next, passing away in 1897. By the way, that wasn't his real name either. It was apparently Charles Arnhem, and his brother Poker Tom was Oscar Arnhem. And old Oscar would follow Charlie to the grave in 1914. I was unable to determine a cause of death for either man. Lim Woodruff ended up moving to Hot Springs, Arkansas, where I assume he refused to call anybody else daddy, and passed away in the year of our Lord, 1902. Louis the Animal Boozman lived quite a long life, making it all the way to January of 1942, before giving up the ghost in Oklahoma at the age of 83. Interestingly enough, Louis Boozman also once rode with Pat Garrett. He was one of the men who helped kill Tom O'Folliard, and it was he and Jim East who carried Charlie Bowdry's dead body back to Bowdry's widow, Manuela. And surviving all of them would be Johnny Lang. He'd go on to become a marshal in Amarillo, take part in the Klondike Gold Rush in Alaska and Canada, serve in the Philippines during the Spanish-American War, and even get involved in politics as the mayor of Haines, Oregon, before finally crossing that veil on April 4th, 1942. And by the way, I was joking about the catfish kid choking on a fishbone. He really did die in prison in 1890, but it was due to tuberculosis. Now, I know what you're thinking. What about that dance hall girl, Sally Emery, a.k.a. the Helen of Tuscosa? Well, despite her yelling and running away as her boyfriend, Ed King, was murdered, Sally was most certainly no wilting flower. A few years prior to the big fight, a cowboy by the name of Bill Gibson, once again an alias, his real name was Frank Norwood, rode into Hogtown looking to spend some of his hard-earned money on whiskey, women, and fun. Bartender John Malley happened to notice the cowpoke flashing money around, so he sent in Sally Emery to soften the mark up. Sally lured Gibson back to her crib, and once the poor bastard was in a post-coital slumber, here comes John Malley, creeping in, killing Frank Norwood, and stealing all his money. A few months later, the victim's brother, Ed Norwood, rides into town and likewise begins flashing money around. And he too was seduced by Sally Emery, or so it seemed. Truth be told, Ed knew exactly what had happened to his brother, and he was planning on exacting some good old-fashioned revenge. Norwood laid there in Sally's bed for hours, pretending to be drunk, as he waited for John Malley to arrive. Finally weary of waiting on the bartender, Ed just got up out of Sally's bed, sashayed on over to the dance hall, and put a bullet straight into Malley's chest, right in front of everybody. And thus, another addition was added to Boot Hill. Unfortunately, I was unable to find out any more on Sally Emery. 
I have no idea what her origin story was or whatever became of her. Apparently, Sally just faded away into history, much like the town of Tuscosa itself. First, the railroad passed them by, causing many of the citizens to pack up and move. And then, in the winter of 1886 and 87, you had a cattle-killing blizzard known as the Big Die-Up, which bankrupted many of the area ranchers. Today, although home to an organization for at-risk youth, not much remains of old Tuscosa. You can still visit the courthouse, which is now the Blevins Museum, and there's even some remnants left of the old stone sheep pens built by Tuscosa's very first inhabitants. And yes, you can visit Boot Hill, where the graves of Ed King and his pals are still plainly visible, as are many of the dozens of others who came to a premature end there at the cowboy capital of the Plains. And dead though the town may have been by the turn of the century, the same could not be said for the love between a gambler and a certain dance hall gal with a heart of gold by the name of Frenchie McCormick. Not her real name, but at this point, who the hell's keeping tabs? Now, Frenchie first came west as a teenager and fell in love with a gambler by the name of Mickey McCormick in some smoky old saloon over in Mobiti. The two lovebirds migrated further west to Tuscosa and began working in the various saloons and gambling joints of Hogtown, where, according to Mickey, he always won at cards when Frenchie was by his side. They both lived there in Tuscosa during its wild days. They both knew Billy the Kid. They were there during the big shootout. And they were both there when the railroad bypassed the town and its eventual decline. And although Tuscosa began to crumble, their love for each other did not. The gambler, Mickey McCormick, died there in 1912, and once everybody else finally left town, Frenchie stayed on, by herself. Said she couldn't bear to be too far away from her man. For over 27 years, Frenchie McCormick remained in Tuscosa, all alone. No running water, no electricity. Until 1939, with failing health, she finally allowed herself to be moved under one condition. That after her death, she'd be brought back and buried right next to Mickey. And she was. After passing away in 1941, somewhere around the age of 90, Frenchie and Mickey were reunited once again. And I guess that's about all I've got on Tuscosa and the big fight at Jeekin's Saloon. One thing to note, uh, the version of the gunfight I recounted in today's episode is not the only version. What else is new? I think the same can be said of every single fight we've ever covered here on the Wild West Extravaganza. Now, if you have any further information, anything I didn't cover in this episode, if you're an expert on all things Tuscosa, please don't hesitate to hit me up, josh at wildwestextra.com. And also just email me if you want to say hi. If you've got any complaints, topic suggestions, whatever, hit me up. This episode was a listener-suggested topic, by the way, so keep those coming. I'd give a shout out to the guy that suggested it, but I lost the email and I can't remember his name. So thank you, mystery man. And thanks to listener Jeanette, who wrote in with the following question. Josh, are you familiar with the music of Charlie Crockett? I think you would enjoy it. And yes, Jeanette, I am familiar. And yeah, I think his stuff is great. If you've never heard of Charlie Crockett, the guy makes, uh, I guess you could call it country music. It's like old school country music with a lot of soul. I'll put a link in the show notes to one of my favorite songs of his, a little ditty called Painted Blue. And yeah, Charlie apparently is some sort of distant relative of the late great Davy Crockett. I don't really talk about music much here on the Wild West Extravaganza, but I have some very wild variations in taste. I pretty much listened to nothing but punk rock when I was a kid. Then when I was around 16, I discovered Johnny Cash. And that opened up a whole new world. Nowadays, depending on my mood, you can catch me listening to Eminem one minute and Willie Nelson the next. 
I do tend to lean more towards the singer-songwriter stuff, though. Guys like John Moreland and Roger Allen Wade. I tell you what, if there's any interest whatsoever, I'll try to create a Wild West Extravaganza playlist on Spotify. Email me or leave a comment. Let me know if that's something you'd be into. Also, let me know what songs you think should definitely make the cut. I'll try to make it happen. All right. Huge shout out to Ron and Tim, who were both very generous recently with their donations via Buy Me a Coffee. If you find value in the Wild West Extravaganza, if it brings you joy, if it entertains or educates you, and you would also like to contribute to the cause, you can do so by visiting buymeacoffee.com forward slash Wild West. Link in the show notes. Also, a big shout out to everybody supporting the Wild West Extravaganza on Patreon. Thank you. Patreon.com forward slash Wild West Extra is where you can find the entire back catalog of the Wild West Extravaganza and access it all 100% ad free. It's really easy. You can add the RSS feed to whatever podcast app you already use and bada bing, bada boom. You're good to go, homeboy. Till next time, just stay away from girls named Sally. Trust me on that one. Adios. Adios.